All right, so here we go. Now, I find myself a little melancholy about this particular sermon because where we are is, is in the Old Testament. And the thing is that when I was seven years old in the Lord, I was 19 years old when I got saved. And then I was, so I was 26 years old. And for those seven years, I was everything a Christian was supposed to be as far as I knew. I was going to church, I was tithing, I was, I was fellowshipping, I was hearing great sermons, I was, I, was, I was a Christian going to church and really loving God and all that kind of stuff. And then through a circuit series of events that I've talked about before and I'll talk about again, but not today, God took me to another church on Easter Sunday in order to baptize me in the Holy Spirit. But even, and I can't say even more deeply because how does it get more deep than that? Salvation probably is the deepest. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is second, but this was third. Because what happened was, is I ended up at a church called Happy Church. Now I have to tell you, Happy Church is not a place doctrinally that at this point in my life I could go to. So, you know, but I have to tell you, God did something extraordinary for me. And that was he put me under a teacher named Marilyn Hickey who was so anointed to bring the Old Testament alive that it changed my entire understanding of the Bible, of God, of everything. My relationship with him, who he actually was. She would go into the Old Testament and she would show you things that were there. That even though you were reading the story and you, you, you read it and it means what it says, God is not opaque, right? He's communicating well, and he was communicating in the Old Testament this way. But all of a sudden, she would just do this thing where it was like the veil got pulled back, and you would find God, loving God. Not how so many people think about it, which is there's the God of the Old Testament who's angry and mad all the time, and then there's the God of the New Testament who's loving and tolerant. No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what that sign back there says, and that's what I believe, and that's what she taught me. The same God of the Gospels and Jesus Christ and the exceedingly good news was to be found throughout the Old Testament in the most extraordinary ways. And so now, here I am. I teach the Old Testament a lot. You know that if you come here, because I believe in this. And I've tried to do this, but now that we're actually in a series on the Old Testament, and this particular one that we're doing today, which is going to be God literally going and pulling back the veil and showing us a thing of love that I never saw before. It makes me melancholy. Not melancholy, it makes me nostalgic. It makes me melancholy even a little bit too. It makes me just go, how beautiful he is. Just beautiful. So I want to say something. If you want to know God in how beautiful he is, then you need to follow. There's three movements of the symphony today. And you need to follow the movements because the thing we're getting to is somewhat subtle until you're in the journey of it. And when you're in the journey of it, then you'll go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Okay? So that's what we're going to be doing today. So the person who's praying for us is Josh Morris. Oh, man, Josh Morris, I want to, can I just come and live with you? I just want to be around you more no. in my life. Yeah, no, he's saying no. Okay, thanks, but, but I'm coming. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Pray for the sermon, lift up into the church. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives, in this body. Holy Spirit. Stand in front of us and lead our hearts, lead our minds, lead our spirits into your presence today as we hear your word. Father, you are truth and you are life and we trust you with everything and we give you our lives. Um, And Father, I lift up uh, uh, First Lutheran Church in Astoria where my parents grew up. I just ask that you would lead them into your presence, Father. Thank you, Lord. Um, let them see who you are and minister to the to Astoria. Amen. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. 
I am getting a ringing. I know you guys are hearing that, so thanks. I didn't, I'm not entirely sure you are, but all right. So here we go. So here's what's happening, okay? So over there, Goshen, you see the Nile coming down. This is an actual satellite image. And this is of today's world. The Red Sea actually went up further north at that point in time. But anyway, there's the, there's the land of Goshen, which is the, Nalta, the, the, the delta of the Nile, or the Nile Delta. And so it's incredibly rich, right? And that's where the Israelites were. But remember, they were 400 years past their ancestors that had brought them there through a famine. And they were now 400 years away from God talking to them or knowing anything about God. They didn't know anything about God. Until all of a sudden this Moses guy shows up and he starts saying, hey, we're supposed to go and be with God and go to the promised land that you've heard about a long time ago, but now 400 years later, think about 400 years, twice as long as this nation has been or this country's been a nation, okay? So the point is, they come down through the Red Sea, but uh, sorry, they get delivered from that land of Goshen. This is important for the sermon, so we're reviewing it real quickly. They get delivered from it with 10 plagues. Now, the thing about the plagues is they start off real small, right? Like just water into blood, and even the magicians can do that. And the second one they can do too. The third one they can't do. The fourth one they really can't do. By the time we get to the last six, the miracles, the plagues are now happening in Egypt, the rest of Egypt around them, but not where they are. All the way to the point to where they're, they're seeing, you know, locusts and they're not at all in their land and they're everywhere else eating everything else. And it gets to the ninth one where it is completely dark, so dark that the people in Egypt can't see in front of their face. They're like, they're like a blind person. They have to walk around. And yet in the land where the Israelites are, it's light. Now I want to tell you, you need to be feeling this. You need to be on the journey with me, remember? So you got to be feeling what you'd be feeling at that moment in time. Wouldn't that kind of freak you out? I mean, on the one hand, you're kind of thankful. On the other hand, you're going, this is spooky. Now, all the more so when you get to the 10th one. Because at the 10th one, what happens is you're sitting inside of your house. It's deathly quiet, literally. You have paint over your doors, and the angel of death is coming across the land and passing over your house and taking the firstborn male of every house that doesn't have that blood on the doorpost, of every human and animal. Now, don't you think that after something like that happened, you'd be like a little frightened? You'd be thankful, but wouldn't you also be a little scared, freaked out, like, what the heck? Now, that's the miracle, of course, that takes them then, and they can, they're finally released. And they get to the Red Sea, and they go through the Red Sea, and we've talked about it, where there's walls of water. And again, I need you to walk through walls of water and just be looking at those walls of water and saying to yourself, what? And what happens if? And don't you, you I need you to feel fear. And then I need you to get to the other side. And now you're looking back and here comes this army, the greatest army in the world at that time. This is the United States of America coming and all of its services coming at you full force. And all of a sudden, those walls of water collapse and kill every single one of them. Now again, don't you think that that causes you to, brings you up a little short in your heart? What the heck? It, it would take a really massive ego to think, oh, that's cool. Instead, what you're thinking is, what the heck is going on here? Now what's going on, of course, is that God's revealing himself, right? He's trying to show us who he is. And it's only been happening for a little bit. Then they get to where they got quail coming in every night for two to three million people, quail. How much quail does that take? Manna every single morning, miraculous bread, waters that, are, that were bitter being, a rock in the desert being split so that water comes out for two to three million people. This is something and then they get all the way down here to Mount Sinai, and here's what happens. Now watch. 
On the third day, when the morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain. Somebody texted me. We're reading this right in our soap right now. For those who are following our Bible reading the soap, we're right at this, these passages. And the point is, is somebody said, is that like a volcano? And I never thought about that before, but yeah. It would be like sitting at the bottom of a volcano and it's lightning and thunder only. It's even worse than a volcano because it's not just the mountain. The whole mountain is encompassed in a smoke and lightning and fire. The whole mountain. And it's shuddering. Look at a, a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Do you see this? They are scared. This is a fright. We should be running away, shouldn't we? Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Thanks, I guess. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord had come down it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain shook violently. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. This is an incredibly awe-inspiring moment. Do you feel it? The Lord came down on Mount Sinai, the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain. He went up. Then the Lord directed Moses. Now, here's where we get a, a turn here. Go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord. Otherwise, many of them will die. Now, you have to understand something. We who understand holiness and have heard about it a lot, we understand a little bit of what that means. But this is brand new to them. See, even Moses doesn't know much about the holiness of God. All he knows is he saw him in a burning bush and he was told to take off his shoes because it was holy ground. But this is a whole new thing that God's revealing about holiness. Sin in the presence of holiness dies. See it? So what happens is go down and warn the people, even the priests who come near the Lord must purify themselves or the Lord will break out in anger against them. So what the Lord's teaching them is, watch this, what this new people whom he is making his people already know is his power, his awe-inspiring greatness. The plagues, the Red Sea, all of this. They know this. They're watching him on the mountain. Wow. Frightening, you know, shuddering, shaking you to your core. But what's he doing now? He's been showing them how awesome he is. But now he's showing them how holy he is. And what that holiness means. Now, we can go all the way through the Old Testament. And we can see this over and over and over again. Let me just show you how it happens for Moses right here. When Moses is up on the mountain, he says, I'm speaking to the Lord face to face just as a man talks to his friend. We're talking. This is how he's talking to him. When Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, at some point in time, they say, hey, God talks to us too. Why don't people listen to us like they do you? And God says, fine, I'll show you what this is all about. He brings the three of them out there and he says, look, Moses talks to me face to face. That's not how it is with other people. With them, I have to speak in dreams and dark sayings, things difficult to understand. That's not how it is with Moses. He sees me and he knows me face to face, but that's not how I am with other people. That's how I am with him. So you would think that Moses knows God, right? And the answer is he does. But here's the cool thing about what he knows. The more that he's spending time face to face with God, the more that he realizes this is God appearing in a way that Moses can hear, see, be with. And he starts to realize there's more to God. You see it? There's more to God than just this. And so what he does, Exodus 33, verse 19, or 18, please let me see your glory. <laughs> I know there's something more to you. Let me see your glory. Now watch what God says, though. Now watch this. Remember, he's teaching people about holiness. Then the Lord replied, I will make all my goodness, that's how he describes himself, goodness, pass before you, and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I'll show compassion to anyone I choose. Now that has to do with his name, and it also has to do with, I'm just giving you a thing of grace to be with me and to see me like this. But here's what he says. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. See this? Holiness in the, pre or sinners in the presence of holiness. Even Moses, 
also described as the most humble man on the face of the earth. Even Moses couldn't get into God's presence without feeling fear. We sang, show me your glory, show me your glory, show me your glory. Do you really want that? Because <laughs> I can tell you what's going to happen if you do. Moses sees it and he throws himself to the ground. He can't take it. <laughs> In fact, seeing God's holiness just the back of it. God puts him in the cleft of a rock, walks by him, declaring his name, pulls the hand away. Moses sees him, but for a moment from the back and then throws himself on the ground, going, I am undone, like Isaiah said in the temple when he saw God's glory. And he said, I'm undone. I'm gonna die. I feel like I'm gonna die. And what happens is, is that when Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets, the law, inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he'd spoken to the Lord because he'd seen his glory. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. Now look, if, if, if your face started shining right now, I'd be a little freaked out to go and talk to you. That'd be a little freaky, right? Yeah, thank you, Steve. But, but here's the deal. That's just the superficial level of it. The deeper level of it is, the reason why people didn't want to look into it is because when they looked into it, the New Testament makes it clear they were seeing the reflected glory of God. And even the reflected glory that was fading was convicting them and making them feel like they were going to die. Do you see it? Now, this is just extraordinary. We have John. We, we, we go all the way through the Testament. By the way, when, when the glory fills the tabernacle, what happens? Nobody can even stand up. When the glory fills the temple, what happens? Nobody can even stand up. Now, we have John. Now, I think that John is very arguably the, had the closest, most intimate, most loving relationship of all the disciples with Jesus. I think it's very clear. He refers to him, he never refers to himself as John in his entire gospel. He only says things like this, the disciple that Jesus dearly loved. He felt loved by God and he loved him back. Do you see it? This, this one that I was so close to, and I was so close to him that you have to understand, in, in the table, you know, we see the, the table with them all on the right side to take a selfie. But in fact, what happened was, is it was a low-lying table that went around like this, and they would, they would, like this, they would go on their right arm, and they would eat with their left from the table. Now, you can't have your feet by the table, even though they've been washed, so the next person is right here. His elbow's right here, and his feet go behind. Do you see it? So what's being said here in this verse is, is that John's head, he's the one closest to Jesus, his head in his chest. You see the intimacy of that moment, of this thing? So, so this is John. This is how he knows Jesus. Like Moses, saw him face to face, was with him. And yet in Revelation, when John sees him in who he really is, and even that wasn't who he absolutely really is, but John sees him in the way that was described there, and we're not going to go into it, but, but when I saw him, says John, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> like his best friend sees who he really is and collapses dead. Do you see that? I just, I'm trying to get us on this journey. This is the first movement of the symphony. I'm trying to get us to where we understand something about the glory of God, not just in its holiness, but in its majesty and hugeness. There is a scene in Revelation that goes like this. Then I looked and I saw a door standing open in heaven. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. We later find out the lamb. The one sitting on the throne was brilliant as gemstones. Picture this in your mind. Brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian, and the glow of an emerald, what's that, circled his throne like a rainbow, and 24 thrones surrounded him, and 24 elders sat on them, and they were all clothed in white purity, and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came, does this sound familiar to you, like Sinai? came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames, the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne, a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal, which we later find out is all of the saints, millions, billions before him, in this sea of people before him. In front of the throne, a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. In the center, around the throne, four living beings. 
And the four living creatures day and night never cease to say, holy, 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 which is not just holy, it's three times holy, which is to say in biblical parlance, perfectly holy, absolutely holy, utterly holy, absolutely the completion of holy. He's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living, now watch what happens. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, whenever they say, holy, 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 then what happens is, and who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne. See, they can't stand. They're in heaven. <laughs> and they can't even stand before him. They fall to their knees, they fall to their faces, and they cast their crowns out before him. Do you see it? In heaven. Well, it's pretty good that I can get up and down like that at this age. <laughs> Thank you. They cast their crowns saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You're worthy, not us. You are worthy of all of this, not us. You, not us. Do you see it? It's always you. It's all right. Now, I, I've, been, I've always been wanting something that would capture this visually because it's so glorious and I just want you to feel it visually because we're visual people. And Adam Obonsky, a few Easter's ago, did something spectacular. By the way, pray for him. He's going through some stuff, health-wise and so on. But, but here's the thing that he made for us. Um, would you guys back there click me? David, thank you. Now, he did this, and this is, this is still infinitely less than what it is, but do you, do you start to feel it? The glory of this moment? But let me say, even in this, all of a sudden when I start thinking about, you know, even that's lacking, you know, God said that in all of creation he has left his imprint so that we would know him in all of his fullness. And he's actually done that because look at this one. This is an actual NASA telescope, the NASA, you know, the Hubble. And this is an actual picture. It's been rendered by NASA to go into 3D, but this is actually out there in the universe, and I can show you 30 of these, but I love this one in particular because look at that. Is that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your whole life? I mean, if you were seeing that, if you were in a little spaceship, like we, you know, we're flying through Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever, if we're flying through, the, don't you think that's unbelievably gorgeous? Hundreds of millions of light years apart, but here's the truth about that right there. We couldn't last, no spaceship ever could ever last that long in the presence of all the deadly forces that are being unleashed by all the stars that are being formed, by the cosmic radiation that's coming out of that. It would disintegrate you instantly. The degree to which the Milky Way protects the Earth from what the universe is, is extraordinary. We are perfectly placed in a way where we are protected from what most of the universe is, which is trying to kill us. It's not intending to kill us, it just does. And that's a metaphor. The holiness of God, it is beautiful, surpassingly beautiful, and completely deadly. And this is the end of this first movement because here's what I want us to do. I want us to understand what real praise is because real praise is not some empty, cheap praise that has little meat and substance. It's rather a praise that fully feels and fully understands that there but for the grace of God, terrible things happen to me. Except for the grace of God being in his holiness, his beautiful holiness kills me instantly. In fact, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord, right? That's the scripture. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, right? But watch. See, we need to start. When we really enter into the fear of the Lord, that's when we can start understanding how blessed we are that we are not being destroyed by who he is. <laughs> just who he is. It's not like he's angry and going, I smite you. It's just that his holiness is there. There's a priest walking by the ark being carried on the back of a donkey. It's supposed to be carried by us, but it's being carried on a donkey and this priest is a holy guy and the donkey stumbles and the ark begins to fall and he reaches up and touches it and turns to ashes. That's not God being angry. That's just sin in the presence of holiness is disintegrated. You see it? So what happens is when we really start to enter into the fear of the Lord, when we really start to enter into who he actually is in his beauty and terrifying then we couple that with the phenomenal intimate care, the protection, the miracles, the love that he is so graciously pouring out on us. 
Do you see it? It's in the play between the two that you enter into the fullness of the truth. If you don't understand the fear of the Lord and who he really is, you cannot properly thank him for what he's doing for you right now. The way that he's protecting you. The things that he's done to provide for you. You see it? Only then do we get to see the deeper praise that the 24 elders feel as they're right in his presence. Now we start to enter into when we understand him and his awesome terribleness, frighteningness, and his awesome beauty, love. So that's the first movement of our symphony. Now we're gonna go to the second movement of our symphony. Now that we have an understanding of the hugeness of God and the intimate love and care that he gives to us, the second movement in our symphony is, have the people of Israel build me a sanctuary. This is what he tells him up in the thing. He says, build me a, a tabernacle. Build me a tent, right? And so this is what it looks like. There's the people and there's this tabernacle in the middle here. Now, now, Here's what I want us to get out of this second movement of the symphony. Here's the thing I think God wants to ponder. The scale of the tabernacle. Look, I understand something. These people are nomadic, meaning that they're traveling in the wilderness. So they need to be able to roll all this stuff up. Whenever, the, whenever God moves in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, whenever he moves, then they gather up the whole of the tabernacle, they roll it up and they carry it and they move to the next spot. So you can argue that God made it relatively small because they needed to be able to carry it. But I would argue back with you that A, there was two to three million of them and B, they weren't doing anything because all they were doing was gathering manna in the morning and and basically picking up quail at night. So it wasn't like they were working their fields all day long. They could have easily built a spectacular tabernacle, right? I mean, properly done. The kind of religious things that we have all over the world. I don't know, how many people have ever seen Sagrada Familia? Am I saying it right? How many people have seen it up close? Okay, is it as great as I think it is? You're saying yes, right? It's like, you guys, you guys were just there, weren't you? Yeah, it is, everybody that I talk to that ever goes there say, you just cannot comprehend it. First of all, look at how big it is. Now understand, see, in the, in the science of architecture, as has to do with God, what you want to do with architecture is you want it to bring your eye upward because that's worship unto God. So you want a huge facade, a huge spirals, spires, all of the things that go up and that bring our attention up to God. That's what the, that's what the, the, the logic or the, the feeling that they want you to have is. But now look when you go inside of this thing. Have you ever seen anything like that in your life? This guy was on something serious, okay? And I, and I think it was the Holy Spirit. I mean, look at this. Is that just... That just, that's crazy gorgeous. I mean, this is just one little stained glass thing. It doesn't even show anywhere else. And this is what it is. Every detail everywhere, full scenes of the nativity that are just dwarfed by the size of everything else. Look at, I mean, look at that. Oh my gosh. Again, you see how all of it's drawing our eye upward? See that? When you walk in, you, it's like there's a lot to look at here, but you go, you go, whoa. And that's what you're supposed to be doing to it. See? Now, is this in there, you guys? Because it's kept saying this was Sagrada, but that's totally different architecture, isn't it? So there's, in different places, it's just like totally different architecture. So there it is. Okay, now, I don't know about you, but that's like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. As far as a building goes, and here we're back to the, to the main floor, and you can see now we're just looking straight up at the ceiling. Look at that. Just at the doorway right there, that doorway is so tall that there's a life-size entire nativity scene with life-size statues in it. Just, just above the door. Can't even see them in this, because they're so small relative to the scale of the thing. Now, if I'm building a temple or a tabernacle, or anything. If I'm trying to build something for God, that's what I'm building. Now, I can't build that. 
to be clear, but I want somebody like Gouda, Gaudi, okay, whoever his name is. I want somebody like that building that because that does everything I think should be done in a building for God. Do you see it? Now, let's be clear about something. See, the temple itself was pretty spectacular. This is the actual temple at Jesus' time. And we call it Herod's temple, which I'm gonna explain in a moment. But this is Herod's temple. And you see how small the people are? That's a pretty impressive building, isn't it? When you walk in there, you have all the feelings I was just talking about. The immenseness, the gorgeousness. And you have to understand, gold everywhere. Covering everything in ways that are just surpassingly spectacular. So that's, that's impressive. That is awe-inspiring architecture, isn't it? But do you realize something? That's Herod's temple. And we don't say Solomon's temple when we talk about that temple because Solomon's temple was actually a lot more simple than this. It was still pretty grand. And Solomon was a master builder. He could have easily built this. But Solomon built what David had in his heart to build. You remember, there's a point in time at which the Lord sends the prophet to David and he says, this house that you want to build me, do whatever you want to do, the Lord is with you. But understand something. It wasn't God that drew up those dimensions. It was David. And even David made a temple that is about a quarter of the spectacularness or less of that, maybe a tenth of the spectacular of Herod's. It was still spectacular, but it wasn't opulent. Now I want to propose something to you. The grandeur, opulence, ornateness, and majesty of what we build to him can be a religious spirit. I'm not saying that Gauda, Gaudi, I'm not saying that he has a religious spirit because I think he's trying to express worship unto God in a way that I think is just mind-bogglingly beautiful. But what I am saying is, is do you understand where we're going here? See, there's a way of doing things that is the way we think they should be done. Herod isn't even, he's Jewish, but he's not Jewish. He's for the Romans. And he's making it beautiful for the Jewish people in the way that we want a temple to be. But it's not what God wanted. In fact, here's what God says about all these temples and cathedrals. The Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house could you possibly build for me? That God of the universe thing? You're going to build me a house that'll fit that? <laughs> Do you see it? What place can be my home? I want to show you the home that God designed. Dimensions included. This is the house that God designed. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't nice. It was nicer than the other tents. But it's still just a tent. Do you see it? It's not anything terribly spectacular. It was plated in gold. There was a lot of things about it that were cool. And you can say it was because he was doing this, but I think it's much more than that, much deeper than that. We can read it and say, well, it had to be simple so they could carry it. I think it was intentional what God was doing here. Here's what I want to show you. This is not to scale in the whole drawing, but the, the measurements are right, okay? So here's what I want you to see. Right now, when I stand right here and I go to the back wall, that's about 80 feet, Okay, to get to 150 feet, which is how long the whole area was, all those curtains, we'd have to go basically to the back of our building. So you go through the kitchen, across the hall, through the classroom, and that's about 150 feet from where I'm standing right now. And if it's not quite, then I could go to the back of here and it would definitely be. So from here to the end of that building, now, now, now understand something, that's not a small structure, right? But we're talking two to three million people and we want them to have awe if what we were trying to go after was awe, you would build something much larger than that, and you have plenty of people to do it. Now, but let me show you something that's even more. Watch this. 45 feet is the total length of the tabernacle. Guess how far that is? 80 feet. Thanks. 80 feet. What am I, right? Am I about halfway right here? So I'm going to say right. I don't even get to the last row. The whole tabernacle that God made his home wasn't any longer than this. And it was only 15 feet wide. So if I fall over and hold up my hands, I'm about seven and a half feet. So if I fall over, I get to about that third, four, that fourth or fifth chair right there. 
Do you see that? Both ways. See, that's about 15 feet. So you understand, the whole tabernacle wasn't even enough for us to sit in. The place for the God of the universe to be wasn't even enough for the people that are sitting in this room. Why? Does that make sense to you? Well, God could have easily made it larger, grander, more awe-inspiring, but he didn't. Why? We're at the end of our second movement now because he didn't want to overwhelm them. Look, he'd already overwhelmed them. Those plagues, that was 40 days ago. (laughs) 44 days until they're at Mount Sinai from the time that they leave. So 40 days ago, one month, what what is it? That means halfway through June. That's all the longer that they've known the Lord and he's shown them 10 plagues and the Red Sea and the bitter water made sweet, and the manna, and the quail that's happening every single day, and the water from the rock, and now this volcano that they're sitting at the feet of, and God's, Moses is going up there talking to God. 40 days, 44 days, that's all that's happened. And what's happened in the first 44 days has been all grandeur, hasn't it? Big miracles, big stuff, awe-inspiring, fear-inducing but also praise because it wasn't wasn't happening to you. Do you see it? First movement, but now we're in the second movement, and the thing that he's doing in the second movement is the reason that he made everything, this is why he, everything he, I'm sorry, I didn't read the rest of that sentence. After after all the huge, incredible, awe-inspiring miracles that he had done in the tabernacle, he simply wanted to communicate that he wants to be with us. Do you see it? He's not building a house that's bigger than yours. He's not, he's building a house that's like yours. Jesus Christ, certainly spectacular, but he is a human being. This is why he had everything made on a much more intimate human scale. The one that he designed was intimate and human in scale. You see it? And where did he place it? In the middle of his people. (laughs) Right in the very middle. See all the tribes around him? He wanted to be right in the middle of his people. Have the people build, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. So I can live among them. Think about Jesus. Think about what he's doing. See, we think Jesus came down to save us and then go back. But there's a much more grand statement that's being made, all the more so because it's more subtle. Notice what it doesn't say. He doesn't say, so they can come before me and pay homage to me and worship me and serve me. See, isn't that what you would do if you were a king and you were amongst these people? You would do, they need to come to worship me. They need to come to serve me. They need to come to pay homage to me. They need to do things to me, for me. I'm God, right? That's what needs to be happening here. But that's not what he says. What he says is, I want to be with them. You must build this tabernacle and his furniture exactly like I've instructed. Don't embellish. Don't make it more grand. Don't make it bigger. Don't make it more fancy. Build it exactly like I've told you to build it because I'm trying to communicate something. It's furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. The Lord said to Moses, look, I've specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Ur. I filled him with the spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. See, so he's going to build it exactly what I want, which is to say, incredibly ornate and beautiful, but still scaled. He's already shown us awe. He's trying to show us intimacy. That's the second movement, and now let me show you in the third movement how he does this. This is an actual building. This is a real shot. This is not an animation. 
you see a modern house in the background there. A guy built the tabernacle to scale. Now, he didn't have the money to put gold where there was gold and the bronze stuff and everything else, so he just built it as best he could. Okay, but this is it. Now watch, you come in and all of these, the fabrics that he used are unfortunate because they're real flimsy, but they weren't flimsy. They were quite thick and so on. But anyway, the point is, look, as you're walking into the tabernacle, which is, what are we doing when we walk in the tabernacle? We're going to be with God, right? We're going to meet God. That's what we do, right? We go to the Holy of Holies. We come in and go to him. That's what we do, right? Now think about that. Third movement now. The first thing you have to do is understand that you're a sinner and you're about to go into the presence of holiness and you're gonna die. So God does a thing of mercy. He lets us take an animal and he says, this animal is innocent, right? He didn't do anything wrong. The animal didn't do anything wrong. You did. But I'm gonna let you kill that animal and you're supposed to feel bad about it. It's not a bloodthirsty thing. It's a you're supposed to feel guilt that an animal had to be killed because of what you did. And then you sacrifice that on that altar saying, the price for my sin has been paid. Now we understand something about the sacrifice, right, of an animal. An animal can't die for my sin, that's not fair. So what God does is he lets an animal die for the sin, going forward, going forward, going every year, the sins get put forward another year until the real sacrifice comes, the perfect sacrifice. The Lamb of God. Somebody one time said, you know, these images you use of Christ on the cross, they're too bloody. I don't think it was like that. Actually, the way that Isaiah says it, when he's talking about it prophetically, he says, he was marred so badly that he barely looked human anymore. And if you want to know how, how much holiness means to him, we did this a couple weeks ago, this is it. This is no joke. It took the perfect sacrifice, and he took on all of what was due you and me. All of everybody, for all time before him and for all time after him. All time before looks to him, forward to him. All time after him looks back at him. And that sacrifice is once for all, because he is a man. But it's not even fair that a man should die for a man, right? That's not really fair that you should die for what I did. So the only reason that that works is because he's not just a man, he's also God. The one that we offended. And the one that we offended is taking this all upon himself. So there's the sacrifice. There's the sacrifice that we have when we're walking in the temple and we understand that we have to make. If we're going to come to him, we have to understand this thing about holiness, right? And our sin. But now we go to the laver. And the laver is just simply a place where you take, you know, you've just sacrificed an animal, so you're bloody, you got dust on you, you got smoke on you, everything else. You're coming to the laver where you're cleansing. What you're doing is you're saying, I recognize that that sacrifice has cleansed me. I've been washed clean. So on the physical level, yeah, you're washing the stuff off of your hands. But on the spiritual level, you're acknowledging that the sacrifice made you clean. See it? And now you can enter into his dwelling. Only the outer court of it, of course. Only the holy place, not the holy of holies. But you can enter into it. Now watch this. So there's the outer courtyard, and there's the sacrifice, and there's the laver. I think the laver in that image, by the way, was much too small from everything I've read, but we don't know. But there you go. And then here's the holy place, see? The, and we're going to look at it in the holy of holies. Now in the outer court, when, he, when you come into the outer court, you see the little arrow? This is how people come in. This is how we always think of the tabernacle. This is us going to God. Remember this. What we think of the tabernacle is, this is how what we have to do in order to get to God. We have to do the sacrifice. We have to be cleansed. And then there's more things to be found in the inner, right? And we have to do this in order to get to God. That's how we think. Turns out not to be true, but watch. The movement is us going to him. This is what gets us into his presence. That's how we think about it. The movement is us to him, right? Okay, now here we are at the labor, and now what we're gonna do is we're gonna go inside as soon as this decides to work, there you go. Okay, now we're going inside. Again, these curtains are they're too light, but anyway. Okay, you walk in, now here it is. Now you're in the holy place. And in the holy place, you got the showbread, the, the lamp, and the altar of incense. Okay, now the first one we're gonna look at is the bread. Now this is six loaves of bread, which stand for the 12 tribes of Israel, by the way, I am only scratching the surface on the meaning that is in the tabernacle. When God said it had to be done exactly according to, 
You could literally do a study, as Beth Moore has done, that lasts for months on looking at the colors and the materials and the way they're put together. It's extraordinary, the things that God is communicating through this. But I'm just going after one thread that I want us to see for today. I think God wants us to see. But the point is, see, when we think of this bread, here's what we think of it as. This is the 12 tribes of Israel who are placing themselves before the Lord because they want to be with him. See, us coming to him. Do you see it? So what happens is every week you have to put new bread on there. So every week you're renewing, I want to be with you, God. Okay? But wait a minute. This is, what is this bread? Think about bread for a second. Who gives us daily bread? Do we give him daily bread? Or does he tell us to ask him for daily bread? Give us this day our daily bread. Who's given who what? Yeah, we're putting it before him. We're showing him the show bread. But actually the name of that table and the bread is actually the bread of his presence, of his presence. I want you to ask, this is a speculative right now, but I want you to think about something. Where did they get the wheat to make the loaves when for 40 years they were walking around in the wilderness? Where'd they get the stuff to make the loaves? Was it manna? I think it was. Now, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't matter. But it does matter that you understand the whole imagery of bread and what's being communicated because here's what Jesus says about it. Our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus, now look what he's pointing out. Everybody knew it was God, but he's trying to make a point here to people. You talk about it that Moses gave us bread to eat. It wasn't Moses. I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. Who's giving who what? The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the people say, sir, give us that bread every day. And Jesus replied, me, I'm the bread of life. You see it? Now, again, we've been noting in our drawing that we're making this movement in as we go to God. But all of a sudden we're starting to see something. Isn't it kind of God moving towards us? Isn't that what's actually happening? He's the one that's giving us the daily bread. It's gonna get more so, but let's just go backward for one second and let's notice the sacrifice. Who is it that was the ultimate sacrifice? Was that the animal that we killed and gave to him? Or was it Christ who was given to us? Isn't the real movement to be found here? going this direction. In fact, isn't this what we're gonna do at the end of our service today? When they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Who's giving who what? <laughs> God's giving us the daily bread, which is a manna from heaven, which is Christ Jesus, which is the way that we stay alive for eternity in him. Where's the movement again? It looks like it's God. Ultimately, he's the sacrifice. He's the communion, he's the bread, he's the sacrifice. This is all getting a little different. Okay, let's just go for a quick second to the lampstand. Okay, that's the one over here. Now, this lampstand, uh, he got that one kind of wrong. There's supposed to be almonds up there and everything else, but give the guy a break. You know what I mean? It was hard to do. But anyway, the point is almond for fruitfulness in life and so on. But the bottom line is that's the light of God. Now, now, of course, now, yeah, we're supposed to bring oil to it and we're supposed to keep it lit, got it. So we're doing something, right? That's us doing something. But really, isn't light about the fact that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and God said, let there be light and there was light? Isn't the movement not that we can give God light? We don't give God any light, we're darkness. God's giving us light so that we can see on the physical level so that we can see, but on the spiritual level, as Jesus says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, or God said through John, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. See, it's not just physical light that we're talking about. It's the thing where God comes into our life and he lights it up, and now all of a sudden we see things. The, the song says it perfectly. I was blind, and now I see. 
When God comes into your life, you were blind, but all of a sudden God comes in there and man, all, you're going, well, I, did, I see this completely differently than it was. I was blind. Now I see God lit it up for me. I see it. I get it now. So which way is the light going? Is it us giving to him light? No, it's him giving to us light. You were to command the Israelites to bring you pure oil from crushed olives for the light in order to keep the lamp burning continually. Again, I could go so much deeper, but pure oil, what's that sound like? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in a vessel. The Holy Spirit is in that candle bringing light. What's the Holy Spirit in you? Light bringing light. (laughs) That's what he's doing in us. It's in us now. And we're supposed to be spreading it to the world. We're not supposed to just be going inward with it. We're supposed to be going outward with it. Our faces now radiate because of whose presence we've been in. See it? So you see, all of a sudden I'm starting to think that maybe what's really going on here is like a really little thing where we're going towards him and a really big thing where he's going towards us. And not just to the sacrifice and not just inside the tabernacle, but look, he's trying to get out of the tabernacle altogether. I want you to understand something. What put him in the Holy of Holies, that little 15-foot box? What put him there? Our sin. What does that mean? Can we capture God like that? No, what happens is God has to constrain himself to that little bitty box because if if he let himself be amongst his people that he loves, they would die And so he protects them by staying in a box that we've put him in. And what he's trying to do is get outside of that box into our lives. You see it? In fact, watch this. This is the altar of incense. Uh, There he goes. Okay, so here's the incense altar, and this is right before the curtain. Now, this is something we do, right? This is the prayers of the saints. Okay, got it, because here's how it says it. Okay, in Revelations, those, those people that we've already looked at, and when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held golden bowls filled with incense, which are what? The prayers of God's people. So this incense is the prayers of God's people. So that's something we do before him, Right? Even there, not really when you look at it, because even there, who's the one actually doing the right praying? The Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what God wants us to pray for or even how to pray for it. That's the better language of of another translation. We don't know what to pray for nor even how to pray for it. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in word. Praying in the Spirit, tongues, and just just this, this thing where... The Father knows the, the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads with believers in harmony with God's own will. It says the Holy Spirit searches out the things of the Father that He cares about, that He knows. He comes into us through the Holy Spirit that lives inside, and then we give voice to it in groanings and then tongues and then praying in the Spirit as we are now praying what God has led us to pray. So are those, is that incense prayer before him, is that us going to him or is that him going to us? <laughs> Do you see it? I don't, is this cool? I hope it's more than cool. I hope you're starting to see what God's trying to communicate, which is who am I? I'm the God that's coming towards you all the time. All the time. In fact, watch this one. This is one we all know really well. See, now what we're going to do is we're going to go to the curtain. And again, this is the worst part of this whole... I really like the illustration, so I'm not speaking bad about it. I used it because I like it. But the, here's the one thing. He's going to go right through the middle, and it's going to be this little bitty curtain. This thing in the temple was, we think, between four and eight inches or six inches thick. This was, this was thick. Okay? And you couldn't go straight in, ever. That was thick and solid. You had to go around. And you had to tie a little uh, rope to them, by the way, and they put a little bell on themselves, so they went behind the veil. If they were a sinner and fell dead in God's presence, they could pull you out with the rope. (laughs) 
This is, this is what was the truth. But here's the deal. Here's that curtain, right? That veil that separates the holy God from us. And what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. Now here's how we think about that. We think about that as, see, it's split from top to bottom so that we can go into him. Isn't that how we always think about it? He split the veil so that we could go into him. But it's not that. He split the veil so that he could come out. <laughs> because now there were people that were born again, born of his nature, having his spirit inside of them. He could now go and inhabit you, which is what he always wanted to do, to be with you in the midst of you. Not you, plural, you, particular. Which just puts him in the midst of us. You see it? What he wanted to do is he wanted to come into the midst of you. He's been constrained to that little box waiting to see when he could get out. And now with Jesus dying and people being cleansed of their sin and being born again when he breathed on them in the upper of the room, now he can come into them and he can take up his dwelling and dwell in there. Don't you know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? <coughs> Once again, which way is the movement going? Now here it comes, we're going to go through the veil. And again, he's going to open it, but whatever. And what's on the other side of the veil? Well, the ark. So here's the ark. Now what is an ark? It's a container. It's Tupperware. It holds stuff. The most important part of the ark turns out not to be the container. It turns out to be what's on top of the ark, the lid. On the lid are two angels, and they're covering everything that's inside. In fact, what we call that lid is the mercy seat. What's a mercy seat? There's something inside of here, and I'm sitting on it. That's not like that great for that that I'm sitting on, right? I'm sitting on it to keep it down. So what we really need to look at when we look at the ark is that God is sitting on something, and what's he sitting on? The Ten Commandments, which is what? The thing that we mistakenly said was our way to get to God. He gave it to us to show us that nobody could fulfill it ever that it would take an act of grace, Jesus Christ. That it would take a new birth and a new creation, a Holy Spirit inside of you to even get close to starting to fulfill what that said. And it is good, the law is good, it's great. Zach said it last week, it was beautiful. The law is good. But do you understand something? We thought of it as what we had to do to get to God and what God is saying is, I stuck it in the Tupperware and I sit on it because I'm trying to tell you, I'm trying to communicate something. Grace, love, mercy. It is true and it is real and it'll kill you unless you receive Jesus Christ who fulfills that law. And then you're alive. What's in the, what's in the, what's in the, what's in the Tupperware with it? What's there? Just a second here. The manna, see the manna there? What's that? What's that communicate? It's life. It's that bread. It's what keeps us alive, right? And even cooler, you see the staff right there? You know what that is? That was Moses' staff, you know, the one that he picked up in the wilderness and it turns into a snake and then he strikes the rock and it does the things and it parts the Red Sea and all this kind of stuff. But you know what's in that thing? Or you know what's extraordinary about what's in the, in the, in the ark? That rod is budding. It doesn't have roots. It doesn't have leaves. It doesn't have sunlight. It doesn't have any possibility of life. It's a stick. And yet God is causing that stick to bud with new life. God is causing the cross to bud with new life. A new kind of life that doesn't need and isn't about all that other stuff. You see it? This is the God 
who is trying to come out of where he's had to be to protect us. And he does because in those, those living beings and the elders, they sang a new song with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it for you were slaughtered and your blood was ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Not just the Jewish people, you and me. Every ethnicity, every nation, every land, every tribe, everything. This is what he's done. So here's what I think this illustration that we've been looking at this whole time really should look like. That's what God's trying to do. <laughs> the tabernacle is not about how we get to God. It's God saying how I get to you. <laughs> is that cool? Because I think that's cool. I think Michelangelo just perfectly... Look at God. Look at God. Don't look at Adam. Look at God. Look at him. He's leaning over so far that the angels, the cherubim, are having to keep him from falling to earth. You see it? And he's got his hand outstretched as far as he can get it, doing everything he can to reach us. And how are we? Reclined away from? Don't even bother to hold up our own arm. We rested on our knee. And we got our hand sort of reaching out. Now here's the point of this. It is a religious spirit that makes this tabernacle and our lives all about what we must do to get to him. That's a religious spirit. That's completely wrong. It doesn't make you love God. It makes you realize how far short of it you always come and you always feel guilty and you always feel bad and you always feel like you're not quite enough and you're not good enough and you're not, 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 all these negatives. That's who you are in your eyes. When actually what's happening is the whole of the Gospels in the New Testament and now we see of the Old Testament too is that it is all about him coming to us. Let me say it another way. We live our lives thinking that we need to get to him. Don't you? Isn't that, if you're trying to be a good Christian, now if you're not trying to be a good Christian, you don't do this. And then you take casually the message that I've just given and you say, well, God loves me so I can do anything that I want to do. Fool. Dying in your own foolishness. But if you're trying, if you really want to be with God, if you're really doing that, we all get in with a works mentality that tells us that what this is all about is us trying to get to him. When in fact, all the way back at the tabernacle, the second book of the Bible, God has made it infinitely clear that what is actually going on is, what he's been doing all along is he is trying to get to us. This is what he's doing. This is what he's doing. This is what he's trying for. We make him, he is grand, he is majestic, he is magnificent and glory and holy. That is who he is. We've got to always remember that. And it makes it all the more rich that what he's trying to do is not show himself to just be that. He's showing us what he's actually trying to do, which is I love you. And I'm coming to be with you. Lord in Jesus' holy and precious name. Take this insight, take this revelation. Change us. We got this backwards. We're trying and then we get it backwards. God, straighten us out, get it right. Get it flowing the right direction. You're trying to get to us and you've done everything it took to get to us. Help us get there. Help us, no, not help us get there. That's the wrong way to put it. God, get, come Come now, come Lord Jesus, that's it. Come Lord Jesus, come to me. Inhabit me. Fill me to overflowing to where I become rivers of living water that pour out to the world too. Just like you, I become in your image. You, Father, who have sent forth the Son, who have sent forth the Holy Spirit. God, make us be rivers of living water who are filled to so overflowing that we flow out to life. God, let us fall in love with you.
knowing how deeply you cover us, the depths of your holiness and how deeply you cover us. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, reach down in front of you and there's two cups. And this bottom cup is the most spectacular thing that Jesus, that God did in order to come to us. Jesus Christ on the cross. We recognize that we have broken our lives and are in need of your beautiful sacrifice for us. So we put our fingers in there and we break this, saying, I realize what I've done. This is like that sacrificial moment. And now in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, I lift this cup. And we look through this cup to the cross of you who came to us to heal us. And by your stripes, we are healed. And so we take this cup together saying, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, and thank you, Lord. Now we lift the second cup in which is this beautiful life of love. You've done everything that was necessary on the cross in one moment, once for all. Everything for all at one moment. And now you just await for us to enter into your stream, your river of living water, your life-giving flow. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we lift this cup in which is the beautiful life that you have as we fall in love with you and then just want to spread that to the world. So in Jesus' name, we take this cup saying, I want the life that you already have for me. I want it to be the fullness of the life that I live. Take this cup together. Ushers, thank you for coming forward. I'm just going to stay here. I like where I am. I like who I'm with.